I actually just wanted to take a moment to clarify a point that was made last week. And I know a few of you actually came up to me afterwards and asked me about this very concept, which is the vocabulary of the church and where we get our English word church. And it was obviously very confusing. People were confused. I was confused. Everybody's confused. So I just wanted to take this moment to clarify that. And the reason why I think it is confusing is because it is a bit inherently confusing. Our English word church actually is derived from, or actually has two different Greek words behind it. So it has the Greek word kuriakon and the Greek word ekklesia. So when you see church, it could be either one of those. Are we tracking here so far? What I was trying to point out last week is that the actual derivation of our English word church, the etymology of our English word church, the very spelling, the pronunciation, the word itself does not come from ekklesia. It comes from the Greek word kuriakon. And so kuriakon means belonging to the Lord. It's technically not a biblical word with reference to the church. It does not appear in the Bible referring to the church. The earliest time that we see Kuriakon actually referring to a church or the church is probably somewhere around 300 AD, so circa 300 AD. So obviously it's not a biblical word. But I was just trying to point out that it's actually derived from Kuriakon, and it came through Scottish or ancient Scottish, Gaelic, as it was translated from Kuriakon to Kirk, and then to Dutch, Kirk. Literally, if you go to the Netherlands today, you will actually see the word Kirk, same word. So they call it the Oude Kirk, which is the old Kirk, old church, and the Nieuwe Kirk, which is the new church. And then that was translated into German, Kirsch, where we got our English word church. So you can hear that derivation. And I just also wanted to point out that there are some languages that actually do derive their word church from ecclesia, not kuriakon. So for instance, the Spanish word iglesia. Does that sound like kuriakon? No, it sounds like ecclesia. Or the French word eglise, or the Portuguese word igreja or igreja. I'm not sure actually how to pronounce that. But the Latin Romance languages actually derive their word church from ecclesia, not from kuriakon. So I hope that's a clarification. Clear as mud, everyone? Yes? At the end of the day, the bottom line is, is that both words are very good words. Ecclesia means called out. We are the called out ones. And church means belonging to the Lord. So whichever your flavor is, if you prefer church or if you prefer iglesia, they're both good. I hopefully we are all good. So with that, I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 28. This morning we'll be reading from verses 18 through 20. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Our Father who is in heaven, Lord, we know that you have promised your Son an inheritance of nations, an inheritance of peoples, 
an inheritance which will stretch even to the remotest part of the earth. O Lord, we bank on this promise to your Son, that one day in heaven there will be filled multitudes and multitudes of every people, tribe, tongue, and nation praising the glory of Jesus Christ and the grace with which we were saved. O Lord, we bank on this promise to your Son. So Lord, as we approach your word this morning, help us to worship Jesus, the joy of loving hearts, the fount of life, the light of men. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On July 16, 1999, John F. Kennedy Jr. boarded his private plane called the Piper Saratoga, got behind the wheel of that plane, and took off. The plane departed from Essex County Airport in New Jersey. The flight plan that night was to fly along the coast of Connecticut over Rhode Island to its final destination of Martha's Vineyard, a small, beautiful island off the coast of Massachusetts. It was a flight that Kennedy had done many, many times, over and over and over again. And yet, despite the fact that Kennedy had his pilot's license, despite the fact that he had flown this very same route over and over again, he never made it to his final destination. Instead, that night, Kennedy crashed into the Atlantic Ocean off the shore of Martha's Vineyard, killing himself, his wife, and his sister-in-law. It was a tragic accident. The National Transportation Safety Board determined the crash was caused by, quote, the pilot's failure to maintain control of the airplane during a descent over water at night, which was a result of spatial disorientation, end quote. Hazy conditions existed on the night of the, of the crash. Especially at night, haze can lead to spatial disorientation for pilots. If you can't see where you're going, you don't know where you are. Other pilots flying that very same night reported no visual horizon over the water. Kennedy had lost his horizon. He had lost his compass. He had lost his direction. He could not tell left from right, up from down, or north from south. He had become spatially disoriented. Perhaps the most scary thing of all is that Kennedy never even called for help. He did not contact air traffic control. He did not sound an emergency. He never asked for help. Kennedy was lost, and he did not even know it. He was spatially disoriented, so much so that he did not even know he was disoriented. John F. Kennedy Jr., pilot of the Piper Saratoga, lost his compass, and it cost him his life. You see, brothers and sisters, compass matters. Direction matters. Your horizon matters. Knowing where you are going and what you are doing matters. If you don't know where you're going and what you are doing, you are likely to get lost. If you lose your compass, you are likely to get lost. If you lose your horizon, your direction, you are likely to get lost, and it may cost you dearly. Well, unfortunately, the church in the world today has seemingly lost its compass. It has lost its direction. It has become surrounded by the haze of society, by the haze and the pressures of society. And to put it more plainly, it has lost its mission. The church does not know what it is doing and where it is going today. It has lost its mission. Last week, we started our series by looking at what is the church? Who are we? What is our identity? What defines us? But we should not leave it there. 
we must take one step further and we must ask ourselves, now that we know who we are, now that we know what defines us, now that we know our identity, what are we to do? What are we to do? Now, if we're going to reclaim a biblical mission of the church, we must first understand some preliminary ideas. We must answer some introductory questions. First of all, what is mission? What is mission? You hear this word being thrown around today, the mission of the church. We are missional. So what exactly is mission? Well, it's not as easy as you might think to define. It's not a word that appears in the Bible. The word mission never appears in the Bible. The word mission comes from the Latin word missio, which is derived from the Latin verb mitere, meaning to send. And this Latin word translates the Greek word apostello, which means also to send. For instance, the word apostle means sent one. So at its most basic definition, mission implies four things. A sender, someone who is being sent, someone to whom they are being sent, and a task to accomplish. That is, you are sent out to accomplish something. You are sent out with a task, a particular duty. You are sent out to do something. Andreas Kostenberger defines mission as, mission is the specific task which a person or group seeks to accomplish. Mission is the specific task that the church is to accomplish. Mission is the specific task that the church is sent into the world to do. Mission is what the church is to do. Secondly, how does mission relate to purpose? Well, last week, we saw the purpose of the church, primarily exaltation, worship. Worship is the primary purpose of the church. And we accomplish worship through evangelism, edification, and education. Well, mission and purpose are closely related, but different. The two are connected, yet distinct. Purpose is why. Mission is what. Purpose answers the question, why do we do what we do? Mission answers the question, what are we to do? Mission is the task we are to accomplish. Purpose is the reason we are accomplishing this task. Mission drives us. Purpose fuels us. Your mission is what you need to do to fulfill your purpose. Thirdly, what is the mission of the church? This is the million-dollar question, is it not? Well, there are so many missions of the church today. There is so much confusion about the direction of the church, about the mission of the church. Some people say it is political activism. Some people say it is community transformation. Some people say it is to maintain the morality of society. There are so many missions. Well, as Stephen Neal said, if everything is mission, then nothing is mission. So what exactly is the mission of the church? Well, honestly, it's simple. It's not that difficult to figure out. We read it just now. We read it just a few moments ago. The mission of the church has been given to us by the lips of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ himself, in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. The church has clearly been given its particular task and duty. Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert in their excellent book, What is the Mission of the Church? And if you were going to read a book on the mission of the church, I would commend this one to you. Define the church's mission as follows. The mission of the church is to go into the world and make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit, 
and gathering these disciples into churches that they might worship the Lord and obey his commands now and in eternity to the glory of God the Father. This is our compass. This is our horizon. This is our mission. But the church is surrounded by the haze of this world. The church is surrounded by the haze of the pressures of culture and society. And can it be that the church is so lost that it does not even know that it is lost? Can it be that the church is so lost that it does not even call for help? Has the great commission of the church become the great omission of the church? We do well this morning as followers of Jesus Christ, to reorient ourselves to our mission. We do well to listen to our mission. So in our passage, I want us to see five integral facets of the Great Commission. Five integral facets of the Great Commission. First, the authority of the Great Commission. Verse 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, this is a comprehensive claim. This is comprehensive. All authority has been given to Christ in heaven and on earth. That is, all authority over heavenly realities and over earthly realities, over spiritual realities and over physical realities. However, it's more than just that. I call this a comprehensive claim because the word all appears four times in the Greek in our passage. Christ has all authority over all the nations, over all that I commanded you. And in verse 20, Christ says in the Greek, I am with you all the days. All, 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 all. Christ has comprehensive authority over everything, over everyone, over everywhere, over all of time. Christ has authority. Now this means that when we evangelize unbelievers, you must never fear. For Christ has authority in all times and all places. With his sovereign divine authority, Christ has already chosen those who are his, and so we are sent out to find them. Brothers and sisters, rest in the sovereignty of Christ in your evangelism. The Apostle Paul knew that he could go anywhere and everywhere because Christ already had authority there. Paul could go to Riverbank and preach to a woman named Lydia. Paul could go to jail and preach to a Philippian jailer. Paul could go to a synagogue and be kicked out, stoned. Paul could go to Rome. Paul could go to Athens. Paul could go to Mars Hill. Paul could go anywhere and everywhere because he already knew that Christ had authority there. So brothers and sisters, no matter where you go, in your office, in your home, in your classroom, you should not fear because Christ already has authority there. Jesus says in John 10, 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must also bring them and they will heed my voice. That's a promise. Brothers and sisters, Christ has sheep that are not of his fold, and we must go and find them and preach Christ to them, and they will heed his voice. Peter Cameron Scott was born in Glasgow, Scotland in 1867, and he founded the Africa Inland Mission. But at first, Scott's efforts to bring the gospel to Africa were met with tragedy. His brother John joined him on the mission field, but after a few months, his brother fell ill and died. Peter Cameron Scott buried his brother in the African jungle with his own two hands. A short time thereafter, Scott himself became ill, and he had to return to London. As you can imagine, he was dejected, downtrodden, weary, he didn't want to go back. He didn't want to return to Africa. But while he was in London, Peter Cameron Scott went to Westminster Abbey 
to visit the tomb of the great missionary, David Livingston. At Livingston's gravesite, Scott knelt down and read this inscription written on the tomb. It's there along the left-hand side. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice. Peter Cameron Scott was inspired to return to Africa and to lay down his life for the gospel because he knew that Christ had his sheep there and they would hear his voice. He knew that Christ's authority extended all the way to Africa. So brothers and sisters, whenever you seek to preach Christ to an unbeliever, you need not be timid. You need never be afraid. You need never fear. Jesus Christ is not an intruder going into places he doesn't belong. Jesus belongs everywhere. Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. Secondly, the command of the Great Commission. Verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Now, this is the central command of the Great Commission. It is connected in Christ's grand authority. It is rooted in Christ's comprehensive claim. Christ says, therefore, in light of my authority, go and make disciples. So what is the command? Well, as you know, there's only one major verb in this sentence, and it's not the verb go. It is the verb make disciples. Make disciples is the central command of the Great Commission. To make disciples is the central command of the mission of the church. Our major goal in the Great Commission is to make disciples. A disciple, at its most basic level, has three essential ideas. A disciple is a believer. A disciple is a learner. And a disciple is a follower. First, a disciple is to be a believer. That is, discipleship must affect the heart. It must go beyond the outward man and must penetrate the inward man. We are to make disciples, not decisions. This is not just walk an aisle or pray a prayer. A disciple must first and foremost believe in his master. He must love his master. He must cherish his master. He must trust his master. Secondly, a disciple is a learner. That is, discipleship must affect the mind. A disciple must be concerned about his master's teachings. He must be driven to learn his master's tenets and his master's values. We must be like Mary, as it were, who in Luke 10.39 sat at the feet of Jesus and listened to his word. Brothers and sisters, are you sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to his word? Are you sitting at the feet of your master and listening to his word? Are you engaging in your own personal discipleship? Thirdly, a disciple is also to be a follower. That is, a disciple cannot just learn head knowledge. It must affect the way that he lives. Discipleship must affect the heart, the mind, and the will. We must not just sit at the feet of Jesus. We must get up and follow Jesus. We need not just to sit and listen. We need to get up and follow. Charles Wesley so famously wrote, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Luke 9, 23 to 24 says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's what it means to be a disciple. 
to follow Jesus, to get up and to follow him. Everything else in this verse revolves around this one command, to make disciples. The other actions in this verse, go and baptize and teach, all tell us how we are to make disciples. They are descriptive. They are supportive. Jesus says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is the first mark of discipleship. Baptism is the public profession of believing in Jesus. The early church would have immediately associated baptism with becoming a disciple of Christ. It is the public profession of faith. And Jesus says, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. This first and foremost refers to the content of discipleship. Teaching them all that I commanded you. That is content. That is head knowledge. We must be concerned with the teachings and commandments of Jesus. But again, it must not stop there. Jesus says, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. To observe. To not only be a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. To live the word. To practice the word. To love the word. To obey the word. To be obedient to the word. That is what it means to be a disciple. We must be hearers of it and doers of it. We will never be appropriately missional without first being accurately theological. Theology affects practicality. Doctrine affects living. I hope that each of these actions in verse 19 sound familiar. Because all of these correspond to what it means to be a disciple. If being a disciple affects the heart, the mind, and the will, then making disciples must involve baptism, teaching, and observing. Baptism is the outward sign of belief, the public profession of faith. Teaching them all that I commanded you refers to being a learner. To observe refers to being a follower a believer, a learner, a follower. That's what it means to be a disciple. And Jesus is telling us how to make disciples. So the mission of the church in the world is really simple. Make disciples. C.S. Lewis said, the church exists to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christ. That's our mission. That is our direction. That is our goal. That is our compass. We must draw men into Christ to make them little Christ. And if you're ever wondering, how do we know this is the mission of the church? Then look no further to the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the demonstration of the church's mission. It is the beginning of the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Acts 1.8. The theme verse of the book of Acts is a repetition of the Great Commission. Jesus tells the early church, You shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. What you see in the book of Acts is the church fulfilling the Great Commission. You see the church baptizing, preaching, and teaching all that Christ has commanded them. You see the church obeying the Great Commission. The book of Acts is the demonstration of the church's mission. Now, many of the church's problems can be traced to a misunderstanding of its mission. Throughout the history of the church, there have been two main extremes with regard to how the church is to relate to the world. And there are many, many names for this. Many of them are good names, but I'm just going to go with Leonard Verduin, the historian, who called them sectarianism and assimilationism. The sectarians are at their root separatists. This is the monastic approach. This is the exclusivist approach. They view the church's relation to the world as us versus them. The language is, we are against the world. The separatists, the sectarians, say that we must close ourselves off from the world. We must live like monks. We must go and live in our Christian combines. 
We must hide away from unbelievers. And this is, as you can imagine, represented by the far right-wing liberal, or sorry, far right-wing fundamentalist Christians. On the other hand, we have the assimilationists. The assimilationists say that the church must become like the world if we are to win the world. In order for us to win the world, we must become like the world. This is the inclusivist approach. We assimilate to the world. We conform to the world. The language is, we are for the world. We are for the world. Now this, again, as you can imagine, the opposite extreme, is represented by extreme liberal Christianity. But both of these approaches are in error. Both of these have a fundamental misunderstanding of the mission of the church. Sectarianism is wrong. Because as we see in the Great Commission, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus doesn't say, hide away from the world. He says, engage the world with the truth. Assimilationism is wrong because Jesus says not to go and make yourselves like the world, but go and make the world like Christ. Make disciples. Make little Christ. The reality is the church is not a right-wing group or a left-wing group. The church is neither right nor left. The church is altogether something different. The church is from above. The church, if it is practicing its true mission, if it is being accurate to how the the scriptures tell us to behave, the church is both for and against the world. We are to be both for and against the world. We are to be for winning unbelievers to Christ, and yet we are to be against the sins and ideologies and idolatries of the world. As Jesus says in John 19, we need to be in the world, but not of the world. Now, in future weeks in our series, we'll be covering the various aspects of the Great Commission from baptism to teaching. So today, in the rest of our time, I'd like to spend it by looking at the first part of the Great Commission, the scope of the Great Commission, where Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. The verb go is not a command. It is actually better translated something like, as you go, make disciples, or as you are going, make disciples. Or, having gone, make disciples. Now, this is a monumental change in the mission of God's people. You see, in the Old Testament, the command to Israel was to stay and obey. Stay and obey. Stay in the land, obey the commandments of God, and you will attract Gentile nations to worship the one true and living God. Stay and obey. This is called centripetal mission. Centripetal means moving towards the center. So in the Old Testament, Israel was to practice centripetal mission. Stay in the land, obey, and attract them in. Bring them in. But in the New Testament, Jesus shifts the mission of the church. He shifts the entire paradigm. He's now saying the opposite, not stay and obey, but go out and preach. Go out and evangelize. Go out and make disciples. Go out and make little Christ. This is a major shift in strategy. Take the initiative, go out. This is called centrifugal mission. Centrifugal means moving outwards from the center. Go out and make disciples. Or as the great missionary William Carey put it, go out and compel them to come in. Go out and bring them in. Now, if you study the religions of the world, you'll notice something very, very interesting. Christianity is one of the few religions of the world that has seen the need and taken the initiative to go to foreign lands to preach to unbelievers in order to convert them. This is called 
the missionary initiative. Christianity is one of the few truly missionary religions. Now, what sets Christianity apart as a missionary religion? Why is Christianity a missionary religion? Well, there are three driving factors. Exclusivity, compassion, and imperative. Each of these three must work together if you are to get this right. Exclusivity means that we believe we have an exclusive message, that our God is the only true God, and that Jesus is the only true Savior. And all those who do not believe in him will perish. Isaiah 45, 21 through 22 says, There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. That is an exclusive claim. Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It is the name of Jesus. Jesus is the one true and only Savior. That is an exclusive claim. But we also have compassion for the lost. Paul says in Romans 9, 2 through 3, that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, The Bible constantly tells us that we are to have compassion for the lost, care for the lost. It ought to weigh on our souls. It ought to be a burden on our souls. We must care for the unbelieving, so much so that Jesus Christ himself came from heaven to seek out and save the lost out of a heart of love and compassion. Finally, Christianity has a missionary imperative. That means we are actually commanded to go. We are actually told by Jesus to go. We actually have a commission to go out and preach. Matthew 28, 19, our very passage itself. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And so we are driven to missions. Next, I'd like to examine the progress of the Great Commission progress of the Great Commission, and this is how the Great Commission has been fulfilled throughout the past 2,000 years of church history. This is church history of the missions variety in, oh, seven minutes. 2,000 years in seven minutes. Here we go. The apostolic period first. Paul is obviously the central figure. He brought the gospel westward as far as Rome, that we know, We believe as far as Spain, but we are not sure. But although Paul was central, many of the other apostles were also frontier missionaries. Matthew preached all the way to Ethiopia. Thomas in India, and he was apparently martyred there. Bartholomew in Armenia. James, the son of Alphaeus in Syria. Thaddeus in Edessa, which is present-day Macedonia. Simon the Zealot in Persia, and as far away as Britain. And the Apostle Andrew is known as the patron saint of the United Kingdom. Are there any golf fans out there? Has anyone ever heard the name St. Andrews in Scotland, the birthplace of golf? This is named after the Apostle Andrew. Unfortunately, however, there is actually little evidence that Andrew even made his way as far as Scotland. One author, R.H. Glover, estimates that the total number of Christians at the close of the apostolic period was close to half a million people. Here is a map depicting the known churches at the close of the first century. The next section is A.D. 100 through 313. The gospel continues to penetrate the then known world, the Middle East, Eastern Europe, and North Africa. And it's very interesting to note that if you study the mission of the church, the history of missions in the church, you will notice that the original Bible Belt, 
which is this very section of the world, the Middle East, Eastern Europe, and North Africa, the original Bible Belt, as it stands today, is now the Muslim Crescent. North Africa, Eastern Europe, and the Middle East. AD 313 to 800, the gospel is brought to Western Europe by people such as Ophelis, Columba, and Patrick. Yes, that is Patrick of St. Patrick's Day. Patrick was not a Catholic. He would be very angry if he had to wear green. He would be wearing orange today. The gospel also officially makes its way as far east as China in 635 AD although there is a great amount of evidence that the gospel actually penetrated China even before that. Meanwhile, this time period also marks the beginning of Islam as a religion. Next, we have the Middle Ages, 800 to 1517. The gospel penetrates northern Europe, Norway, Iceland, Greenland. The eastern Slavs turn to Christ. And in 1517 to 1792, marks the period of further expansion westward. It's highlighted by the arrival of the Puritans onto American soil, of whom 15,000 Puritans emigrated between the years 1627 to 1640. This is when names such as David Brainerd and John Eliot, great missionaries to the American Indians, ministered. Next we have the modern missions movement, which is 1792 to the present. And this time period was broken down into four waves, four waves of modern missions. The first wave of modern missions was denominational missions to the continental coastlands. Denominational missions to the continental coastlands from 1792 to 1865. Denominational refers to primarily the Baptists, what were known as the Calvinistic Baptists or the particular Baptists who spearheaded the modern missions movement. In the year 1792, at a ministerial conference, William Carey, who was known as the father of modern missions, preached his famous message called The Duty of Christians to Attempt the Spread of the Gospel Among Heathen Nations, from Isaiah 54, 2-3. This sermon at this conference essentially ignites the modern missions movement. Missionaries were sent out to Southeast Asia, China, Korea, and Japan. Carey, who himself was a missionary to India, along with Reformed Baptist theologian Andrew Fuller, founded the Baptist Missionary Society. The Baptist Missionary Society focused on taking the gospel primarily to the coastlands of unreached continents, of unreached peoples. Now, obviously, as you can imagine, these people were living in a day and age where to go to a foreign country, you had to literally get on a boat, sail several months, and arrive on a boat at the shore at this different country. So as you can imagine, the coastlands were much easier to access than the heartlands of any particular country. In 1812, America sends its first overseas missionary, Adoniram Judson, who was also a Baptist. They sent him to Burma. Second wave was the interdenominational missions to the continental heartlands from 1865 to 1910. Now this way begins with Hudson Taylor's founding of the China Inland Mission. Do you hear the difference? The China Inland Mission. Hudson Taylor spearheaded bringing the gospel not just to the coastlands, but deeper and further inland into the heartlands of the countries third wave of modern missions was evangelical missions to the countries of the world from 1910 to 1974. Now this was a hugely successful time, geographically speaking, for world missions. By 1974, by consensus, every single country of the world had heard the gospel. By consensus, every single political boundary had been crossed. Every single country of the world had heard the gospel. But that left one last frontier. The fourth wave 
global missions to the peoples of the world, 1974 to the present. In 1934, Cameron Townsend founded Wycliffe Bible Translators. I hope all of these names are familiar to you. Wycliffe Bible Translators focused not on geographically reaching people, but on reaching people culturally and linguistically. This seemed to awaken the church. In 1974, at the Lausanne Congress of Missions, 2,700 church leaders met in Lausanne, Switzerland, at the first international congress on world evangelization. This first international congress was chaired by a young theologian named John Stott. The church shifted from unreached geography to unreached peoples. Unreached geography to unreached peoples. So what is the difference between the third wave of modern missions, which focused on bringing the gospel to various countries, and the fourth wave of modern missions, which focused on bringing the gospel to different peoples? The difference is this. We are to make disciples of all the peoples, not all the nations. The unfinished missionary task facing the church today is to win individuals to Christ from every people of the world. When we read the Great Commission, and we read that we are to go and make disciples of all the nations, nation sounds political. It is better translated, make disciples of all the peoples. The word is ethne, from which we get the word ethnicity. It refers to every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group. So we are to win individuals to Christ from every people of the world, not every nation of the world. If we were simply to save individuals for Christ from every nation of the world, then the missionary task of the church is done. It's finished. It was done in 1974. But that's not the task of the church. That's not the mission of the church. It's a well-known fact that within countries there exist different peoples or different people groups, different ethno-linguistic groupings that live within a, people's, within a country's boundaries. For instance, just look at China. China, a huge country with hundreds of different dialects, different people groups. When I was in Africa teaching in Kenya at a seminary, among a group of 12 men in my class, there were five different tribes that were represented. Now, they all spoke English and Swahili, but their primary heart languages were their tribal languages. Within 12 men, five different tribes. Just because people live in the same country geographically doesn't mean they belong to the same people group. We are to make disciples of all the peoples all the peoples, not all the nations. So that is the mission of the church. It is a great mission. It is a great commission. In fact, brothers and sisters, it is too great for us, is it not? As you listen to this mission, as you listen to this task, do you feel overwhelmed? I admit, I do. And Jesus knew this was going to be hard, so he closes the Great Commission with comfort. The comfort of the Great Commission, verse 20. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now this should blow our minds. In the Old Testament, God said his name was, I am. Here, Jesus takes this one step further, and he says, I am with you. In the Greek, the I is emphatic, as if to say, I am with you. Me, Jesus, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, I am with you all the days. This is Jesus, God with us. This is a fulfillment of Matthew 1.23. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. This is God with us, even to the end of the age. It is literally, I am with you all the days. I am with you the whole 
of every day. I am with you day in, day out, without a break. I am with you until this age is over, until this great commission is finished, until the mission of the church has been accomplished. I am with you. David Livingston was asked on one occasion how he endured all the perils of ministry in Africa. His answer was this. He quoted these last words of Jesus in Matthew 28. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It was said that when Livingston's wife died in Africa, he helped to prepare her body for burial. He helped to build her coffin. He helped lower it into the grave. He helped to cover it over with dirt. And as he stood there over his wife's fresh grave, David Livingston pulled out his New Testament, opened it up to this very passage. He read the Great Commission, closed up his Bible, and he turned to his African friends standing there in a circle around his wife's grave, and he said, Jesus Christ is too much of a gentleman not to keep his word. Let us get on with the task. Brothers and sisters, this is our mission. This is our compass. This is our horizon. This is our direction. Don't get confused. Don't get disoriented. There is a world out there that desperately needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you are charged with bringing it to them. So by the grace of God and by the comfort of Christ, let us get on with the task. Let's pray. Father who's in heaven, it is our prayer as individuals, it is our prayer as a church that your glory would cover the whole earth as the waters cover the face of the seas. O oh Lord, our heart's prayer this morning is that we would have a vision not just for ourselves, not just for our homes or our families, not just for our church, not just for our city, but for the world. Lord, may you stir in us a passion for the nations. Would you stir in us a passion to, to see Christ glorified among every people, tribe, tongue, and nation. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.